If you have a Bible with you today, you could turn to Luke chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. You should be able to find the text in your order of worship or you know, your phone someplace. I'm actually going to begin reading at verse 5. We're going to look at the whole 1 through 13, but I'm going to read verse 5 through 13 now. Hear the word of God. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will, give him, will he give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. <coughs> father, I pray now that you would come. <clears throat> Excuse me. Give us your Holy Spirit. Uh, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart, in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking and in, and in my voice and in my speaking. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, after Advent is, is more or less over, and we're jumping back into the Gospel of Luke. And if you remember, the, an overview of the Gospel of Luke is basically this, is that Luke wanted us to have the right information about Jesus in, in order that we might make the right decision about Jesus. And so we've, gone, we've made it up to chapter 11 so far. And as we get to chapter 11, I actually wanted to start with a, a question to sort of set it up. And, and the question really has to do with what kind of person you are. You see, um, the, the question, imagine you went to a restaurant and you get to a restaurant and you order some specific thing. I don't know what your thing is, whether it's a, maybe it's fettuccine alfredo with grilled chicken on top. It's something. And when the waiter brings the, the meal to the table... If it's not exactly like you asked for it, what do you do? Right? Some people immediately say, that's not what I asked for, and they send it back, correct? Other people just go ahead and eat it. Which one are you? And if, you just go, if you're the person who just goes ahead and eats it, why do you do that? Is it because you don't want to inconvenience the waiter? Like my wife, we don't go out to dinner that much, and it's not because we can't afford it. It's because I used to be a waiter. And man, if you're not at my table in 30 seconds, oh, I'm starting to tick you down, you know. The fact of the matter is, is we often don't ask for things from people just because we don't want to inconvenience them. We feel some sort of uh, pain, some sort of anxiety about inconveniencing another. Now let me ask you, let me switch the question a little bit. Imagine you're in the same restaurant and the waiter comes and the waiter is your friend. Would you, have, would you be less, more or less hesitant to tell your friend you know, hey, Bob, this isn't really like I wanted it. Would you tell your friend? Most of us would. You see, depending on who it is we're actually talking to, it changes our motivation and it changes what we're willing to do. As we get into Luke chapter 11, Jesus is talking about prayer. 
And most of us, if you're a Christian at least, most Christians would say that they're not particularly good prayers. In fact, some of the greatest Christians of all time have said that. I remember reading an article about Billy Graham about 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, they, they, I think they thought he wasn't going to be around a lot longer. And they said, you know, Mr. Graham, if you had it to do all over again, what would you do? Remember, Billy Graham is probably the most uh, significant, as far as at least getting press, Christian of the, of the modern era. And Billy Graham said if he had it to do all over again, he would study more and he would pray more. And I'm reading that thinking, man, if Billy Graham says he would pray more, where does that leave me? Right? I need to think about that. And so the question is, why don't we pray more? Is it a question of mechanics? Right? Do, do, we, do we just not have the right formula? Or is it something else? Personally, I think it's something else. I think from today's text, we'll see that it's something else. And I think that's what Jesus tries to address with regard to prayer. So he's going to teach about prayer. And he's going to talk about mechanics. But he's going to talk about mechanics. And he's almost going to move immediately from mechanics to motivation. What should motivate us to actually want to pray or to be confident in our prayers? So we're going to look at, <clears throat> excuse me, three things. Really two things with one subpoint. We're going to look at the, the mechanics of prayer. We're actually going to look at that re relatively quickly. And then we're going to look at the motivation from prayer. And then we're going to look at that from two angles. So when we talk, talk about the mechanics of prayer, notice in verses 1 through 4, it says, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. <clears throat> and he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we for ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. So the disciples come to Jesus and they've apparently been, they've, some of them are formerly disciples of John the Baptist. They may have had some uh, rubbed elbows with disciples of John the Baptist and they come to Jesus. He had been praying and they come and say, Jesus, teach us to pray like John's disciples have learned to pray. In other words, they're looking for e either a formula or a template. They're looking for some something, right? It, I remember when I became a Christian and then I, want, I was being taught how to pray. Uh, I was taught acts, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Give me some template that, doesn't, that, that isn't the only way I can pray, but it sort of guides me. And Jesus obliges them. He gives them a template. And his template is, is what I'm going to call the mechanics of prayer. And the, the mechanics of prayer really uh, boil down to, to one address, two statements, and three requests, or three sort of areas of request. And so what's the, the uh, address? The address is Father. That's an important way to understand that Jesus begins. In other words, up to this point, the average Joe, the average Israelite, would not have necessarily thought to address God as Father. At least not the way Jesus did. Jesus almost always addressed God as Father. But Jesus says the way you start your prayers is you start with Father. So that's the address. And then you move on. There are two statements with regard to the mechanics of prayer. And the, the statements are just this. He says, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. In other words, you're saying, God, may you, may you be considered holy. May the world consider you as holy. And may your kingdom encompass the whole earth. In other words, the prayer starts by addressing God and sort of going outside of yourself. That, that I want you, know, you to be known and I want uh, all of your glory to just cover creation. Those are the two statements. So it's Father, hallowed be your name, and then 
your kingdom come. And then in verse 3, he basically starts on with the requests. And the requests basically have to do with basic needs. They have to do with the forgiveness of sins. And then the third request has to do with spiritual protection. So he says, give us this day our daily bread for basic needs. Notice he doesn't say, give us this day a great retirement in the future. He says, it's a sort of a day-to-day reliance upon God. And so he says, pray for your basic needs. And then also forgiveness of sins is important here. And and included is the, the understanding that if you're going to ask forgiveness from God, that you're also going to be one who's willing to grant forgiveness to other people. And then finally, the prayer is for spiritual protection, right? Lead us not into temptation. That's the mechanics. And and if all there was to prayer were the mechanics, then everyone would be great prayers, correct? Because we've had the Lord's Prayer for about 2,000 years. So so if all, all you had to do to be a good prayer was to pray the Lord's Prayer or to even pray those things, we would all be great prayers. The question is, why don't we? Why don't we? Why do we lack the motivation? And I think that's what Jesus addresses next. He goes right from the mechanics of of our Father, hallowed be your name, to the motivation for prayer. And that's where things get pretty interesting here. So let's look at the first motivation, starting at verse 5. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Okay, so notice that verses 5 through 7 are one long question that involve two different people. That's important to get. It's also important to get context here in the the. the the biblical times, the time that Jesus lived in in ancient Palestine, maybe the, the primary value in any given community was hospitality. If someone came to you and they needed something or they needed hospitality, it was your responsibility to provide it. And not only to provide it, but to provide it lavishly. And, and if you didn't, it was the whole community's responsibility. And in this story, we see a guy who's put in an awkward position because a friend arrives at midnight. Same responsibility, whether it's midnight or noon, you're still responsible to to show hospitality. And so he's put in a hard position. On the other hand, it's not so unusual because in the ancient Near East, people would often travel at night to avoid the heat of the day. And so someone showed up at his house at midnight. And so the question is, which of you would not go and try and find some bread for this guy? In other words, to show him hospitality. Both of the questions Jesus asks here are rhetorical questions to which he expects the answer no. And so on one hand, if, if you had a guest show up at midnight, the, the answer to the question, would you go find bread for that person? is absolutely. And not only that, but the, the person, the, the friend who needs the bread, it's real important to understand how important the bread was. He probably had other food. Why go get bread? It's because, again, in the ancient Near East, bread was everything. And when I say everything, I mean it literally was like everything. I remember it's, it's sort of like the first time I went to Ethiopia and I ate as the, the Ethiopians eat. Basically, they put a big plate in front of you with a bunch of gooey things. And then they also put this very spongy bread and jira beside you. And there, are, there aren't forks and spoons. There aren't even napkins. I learned to bring wet wipes with me, by the way. I cheated. But nonetheless, the way you eat is the bread is your fork. 
The bread is your napkin. The bread is your spoon. The bread is everything. You have to have the bread in order to eat. And so the friend needing bread, it's really actually a pretty big deal. It'd be like having all the fixings for Thanksgiving dinner, but not having dishes or something. You have to have it. And so he goes to his friend's house. And so on one hand, who would do that? Everyone would do that. You'd have to. But then the real question is for the guy who's in bed. And he says, which of you, when the person comes and knocks at your door at midnight, would say, he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is shut now. My children are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Who would do that? The answer Jesus expects from his audience is no one would do that. I mean, those are pretty lame excuses, actually. If, if your primary value is hospitality, it's a pretty lame excuse to say, you know, my door is already locked. The kids are in bed. I, don't, I can't get up and give you anything. Who would do that? Nobody. And that's sort of the key to, to understanding what's going on here. Because what Jesus says next in verse 8, he says, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, this is one of the most misunderstood texts, I think, in the whole Bible. Because we read that and we tend to think that the reason the man gets up and gives the person what they need is because of his persistence, that he keeps knocking at the door. Did you notice in the text there's nothing that would lead us to believe that the person who needed bread asked more than one time? He came and said, I need bread. I have a friend here. It's mid I know it's midnight. I know it's inconvenient, but I need bread. And the person gets up and gets it. In other words, the issue going on here, it says because of his, he, he says, though he will not get up and give anything because of it, he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. That word in Greek is literally the word shamelessness. You see, in a culture of honor and shame, if the man who was sleeping did not wake up and provide bread for his friend, the next day, or what would have probably happened is the guy would have gone to the next neighbor down the, the, the block, if you will, and said, do you have bread? And he'd say, well, why are you at my house when Bob is your closest neighbor? And he'd say, well, Bob told me to take a hike. Well, the next morning, as Bob walked down the street, the other neighbors would have hissed at him and said, shame, 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 because he didn't show hospitality. In, in other words, the the word there, impudence or shamelessness, does not refer to the guy who needs the bread. It refers to the guy who has the bread. In other words, it, for because of his, his desire to avoid shame or because of his honor, he'll get up and get him whatever he wants. In other words, even if he doesn't like you, even if he was crotchety and even if he was sort of, uh, you know, just like angry and, and didn't want to get out of bed, his honor is so important that he'll get up and get you anything. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, why is that important? Well, because Jesus gives two arguments here for prayer, and they're both going from lesser to greater. So imagine, all of you know somebody, he's talking in ancient Near Eastern culture, who no matter how mean and no matter how ornery they were, they would get up at midnight to get you bread if for no other reason than to avoid shame or to, to maintain their honor. Now imagine this, imagine that your neighbor, imagine that your friend is someone who never sleeps. Imagine your friend is someone who never slumbers. Imagine you had a friend who sat in his house all night waiting and longing for you to come and ask. Imagine if you had a friend who, who understood that you need bread before your neighbor even got there and he just could not wait for you to come and ask. That's what God is like. In other words, an ornery friend will take care of you because of his honor. 
God, God the Father will take care of you also because of His honor. He has promised that He will never fail you or forsake you. Remember in the, when we looked at the book of Exodus? Moses was, when Moses really wanted to challenge God, he challenged him according to his honor. He said, you promised that you would take care of us. And if you don't do this, then all of this, the, the Egypt is going to think you're not any kind of God at all. And what Jesus is getting at here is an ordinary friend will take care of you because of his honor. God, who is proactively out to do you good, even more so. And because of that, notice what he says in verse 9. He said, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. He's not saying you have a blank check here that if you ask for anything, you're going to get that same thing in return. The issue here is more motivation. That there should be nothing that keeps you from, from going to God and asking Him for what you need. In other words, He gave you the template, but the question is, how do you have any confidence that God is going to answer that? Well, if an ordinary friend will answer because according to what's expected of Him, guess, imagine what God would do. That God is the friend who never sleeps. God is the friend who is always there. And he takes it a step further because it's one thing to, to ask your friend for something because of their honor they're going to give you something. But he takes it to, to another level by taking it to the level of a father and a son. In, in other words, it's one thing for you to ask your friend for something. It's quite different for you to ask your father something. And notice where he goes in verse 11. Jesus says, What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. And if you then, <clears throat> who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he, he draws, the, so the first uh, motivation is God's honor, that God is an honor bounder or, or he has promised to take care of you and so you can go there. But the second motivation is the fact that God is your father. Now that's different, that, that that's, that. But requires some teasing out, I think, because a lot of us, when we think father, we don't necessarily think a good thing, right? When I grew up, my father wasn't around very much, and when he was around, I wasn't really encouraged to go to him and ask for whatever I needed. And so when I think father, what does that mean when it's used of God? Well, first thing Jesus says, remember he's going from lesser to greater. He says, if a father, if a, if a son comes and, and asks for a fish, the father's not going to give him a snake, is he? Or if he asks for an egg, he's not going to give him a scorpion, is he? And the, it's rhetorical questions. Of course not. And by the way, he's not saying that if he asks for a fish, he's going to get a fish. What he's saying is that you're not going to be punished for asking. If, the father's not, if, you, if you ask for a fish, the father's not going to come and say, well, I'm not going to give you a fish, but just because you ask, I'm going to give you something that's going to harm you. Be, you know, it's sort of a, a little child comes up and says, Daddy, can I play with matches? And you, you would say, no, but you can have the blowtorch, right? He's not going to do that to you. He's not going to let you harm yourself. He's not going to give you something that's bad for you. And that's something I want you to think about. If you're a note taker or if you're not a note taker, you should write this down and think about it every day this week. And the question that, that I want you to think about is this. Is God the Father proactively out to do you good? Do you believe that God the Father is proactively out to do you good? That he might not answer all your prayers right away with what you wanted, but in fact, maybe by not answering your prayers, he's doing you a favor as well. 
But what you can count on because he is your father is that when you pray for something that you think is reasonable, he is not going to give you something harmful in response. Because he is your father, he wants only the best for you and he is proactively out to do you good. And Jesus takes it a step further. He says, not only that, the, 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 notice what he says in verse 13. He says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So it, it sort of goes in a weird direction. And in some ways, suddenly he's talking about the Holy Spirit. But notice he's, he's making this comparison from lesser to greater. He said, that if you then who are evil, and I don't think he's being critical there as much as he's just sort of stating a fact. Like we all know that none of us is perfect and that all fathers are flawed. Some are great, but they're still flawed. Some are poor, but they're still flawed. All of them, generally speaking, want to do well by their kids if they can. Jesus says, even you who are flawed want to do well by your kids. How much more will God the Father? And how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Remember Luke of all the Gospels focuses on the Holy Spirit. Luke in, it wrote the book of Acts in chapter 2. He talks about that's where we get the Holy Spirit. Why is having the Holy Spirit so important? You see, but when we're given the Holy Spirit, did you notice the title of the sermon? The title of the sermon was The Friend Who Won't Go Away. And we, when we read this passage, we often think that's the guy who keeps knocking on the door. The more I knock, the more likely it is that God's going to give me something. The, the, you're not the friend who won't go away. The friend who won't go away is God himself. The friend who won't go away is Jesus through his spirit. Because whoever would pray, whoever would trust Jesus for the forgiveness of sins is also given God's Holy Spirit. Now why is that important? That's important because what that's saying is you don't even need to go to the friend's house to find the one who can answer your prayers. You just need to pray because he is with you all the time. The Apostle Paul, I think, summarized all of this up. I wonder if he had this in mind. Notice what he says in Romans chapter 8. He's talking about suffering and in the context of suffering, he says this. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, and those who are called according to his purpose. I'm going to skip down to verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can... Who can be against us? In verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us, graciously give us all things? In other words, is your, is your lack of motivation to pray because you're not sure how God feels about you, or you're not sure that he's going to answer, or you're not sure that he's, gonna, that he's concerned, or you're not sure that he's proactively out to do you good? Well, the Apostle Paul wipes all of that out and says, if you ever have any question about whether God is proactively out to do you good, whether he is determined to be your father in good times and bad, you need simply to look at the cross. You look at the cross of Jesus and ask yourself, did he who did not spare his own son, will he not also give me all things? You see, at the heart of prayer is the cross of Jesus himself. Because at the cross of Jesus, we know that God the Father loved us so much that he was willing to give his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. And so the question is, do you believe that? 
You see, maybe you're not a prayer because you're not really a Christian, because you never really thought about that. Do I really know God through the person and work of Jesus? And if I do know God through the person and work of Jesus, do I go to him as the one who's given me everything? Let me close with, the, with this. My favorite question, we use the Heidelberg Catechism in our church quite a bit. And my favorite question probably is question 26. <clears throat> and question 26 asks this question. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth? Answer. <clears throat> that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence, is my God and Father, because of Christ his Son. I trust him so much that I do not doubt he will provide whatever I need for body and soul, and he will turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this sad world. Now here's the punchline. He is able to do this because he is almighty God. He desires to do this because he is a faithful father.